Section 6 of Stories by Foreign Authors, German Authors, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones. Stories by Foreign Authors, German Authors, Volume 1, by Various. Section 6. The Cremona Violin by E. T. A. Hoffmann. From Weird Tales. Translated by J. T. Bealey. Published by Charles Scribner's Sons. Counselor Crespo was one of the strangest, oddest men I have ever met with in my life. When I went to live in H. City, for a time the whole town was full of talk about him, as he happened to be just then in the midst of one of the very craziest of his schemes. Crespo had the reputation of being both a clever learned lawyer and a skillful diplomatist. One of the reigning princes of Germany, not, however, one of the most powerful, had appealed to him for assistance in drawing up a memorial which he was desirous of presenting at the imperial court with the view of furthering his legitimate claims upon a certain strip of territory. The project was crowned with the happiest success, and as Crespel had once complained that he could never find a dwelling sufficiently comfortable to suit him, the prince, to reward him for the memorial, undertook to defray the cost of building a house which Crespel might erect just as he pleased. Moreover, the prince was willing to purchase any site that he should fancy. This offer, however, the counselor would not accept. He insisted that the house should be built in his garden, situated in a very beautiful neighborhood outside the town walls. So he bought all kinds of materials and had them carted out. Then he might have been seen day after day attired in his curious garments which he had made himself according to certain fixed rules of his own slacking the lime riddling the sand packing up the bricks and stones in regular heaps and so on all this he did without once consulting an architect or thinking about a plan one fine day however he went to an experienced builder of the town and requested him to be in his garden at daybreak the next morning with all his journeymen and apprentices and a large body of laborers, etc., to build him his house. Naturally, the builder asked for the architect's plan and was not a little astonished when Crespel replied that none was needed and that things would turn out all right in the end just as he wanted them. Next morning, when the builder and his men came to the place, they found a trench drawn out in the shape of an exact square, and Crespel said, Here's where you must lay the foundations. Then carry up the walls until I say they are high enough. Without windows and doors, and without partition walls, broke in the builder, as if alarmed at Crespel's mad folly. Do what I tell you, my dear sir, replied the counselor quite calmly. Leave the rest to me. It will be all right. 
It was only the promise of high pay that could induce the builder to proceed with the ridiculous building. But none has ever been erected under merrier circumstances. As there was an abundant supply of food and drink, the workmen never left their work, and amidst their continuous laughter the four walls were run up with incredible quickness, until one day Crespo cried, Stop! Then the workmen, laying down trowel and hammer, came down from the scaffoldings and gathered round Crespo in a circle, whilst every laughing face was asking, huh, Well, and what now? Make way, cried Crespo, and then, running from one end of the garden, he strode slowly toward the square of brickwork. When he came close to the wall, he shook his head in a dissatisfied manner, ran to the other end of the garden, again strode slowly toward the brickwork square, and proceeded to act as before. These tactics he pursued several times, until at length, running his sharp nose hard against the wall, he cried, Come here, come here, men. Break me a door in here. Here's where I want a door made. He gave the exact dimensions in feet and inches, and they did as he bid them. Then he stepped inside the structure and smiled with satisfaction, as the builder remarked that the walls were just the height of a good two-storied house. Crespel walked thoughtfully backwards and forwards across the space within, the bricklayers behind him with hammers and picks, and whenever he cried, Make a window here, six feet high, by four feet broad. There, a little window, three feet by two. A hole was made in a trice. It was at this stage of the proceedings that I came to H. City, and it was highly amusing to see how hundreds of people stood around about that garden and raised a loud shout whenever the stones flew out and a new window appeared where nobody had for a moment expected it. And in the same manner, Crespo proceeded with the buildings and fittings of the rest of the house, and with all the work necessary to that end. Everything had to be done on the spot, in accordance with the instructions which the counselor gave them from time to time. However, the absurdity of the whole business the growing conviction that things would in the end turn out better than might have been expected, but above all Crespel's generosity, which indeed cost him nothing, kept them all in good humor. Thus were the difficulties overcome which necessarily rose out of this eccentric way of building, and in a short time there was a completely finished house, its outside, indeed, presenting a most extraordinary appearance, no two windows and so forth being alike. But on the other hand, the interior arrangement suggested a peculiar feeling of comfort. All who entered the house bore witness to the truth of this. And I, too, experienced it myself when I was taken in by Crespo after I had become more intimate with him. For hitherto I had not exchanged a word with this eccentric man. His building had occupied him so much that he had not even once been to Professor M's to dinner as he was in the habit of doing on Tuesdays. Indeed, in reply to a special invitation, he sent word that he should not set foot over the threshold before the housewarming of his new building took place. 
All his friends and acquaintances, therefore, confidently looked forward to a great banquet. <laughs> but Crespo invited nobody except the masters, journeymen, apprentices, and laborers who had built the house. He entertained them with the choicest viands. Bricklayers' apprentices devoured partridge pies regardless of consequences. Young joiners polished off roast pheasants with the greatest success, whilst hungry laborers helped themselves for once to the choicest morsels of truffles fricassees. In the evening their wives and daughters came, and there was a great ball. After waltzing a short while with the wives of the masters, Crespel sat down amongst the town musicians, took a violin in his hand, and directed the orchestra until daylight. On the Tuesday after this festival, which exhibited Councillor Crespel in the character of a friend of the people, I at length saw him appear, to my no little joy, at Professor M's. Anything more strange and fantastic than Crespel's behavior it would be impossible to find. He was so stiff and awkward in his movements that he looked every moment as if he would run up against something or do some damage. But he did not, and the lady of the house seemed to be well aware that he would not, for she did not grow a shade paler when he rushed with heavy steps around a table crowded with beautiful cups, or when he maneuvered near a large mirror that reached down to the floor, or even when he seized a flower-pot of beautifully painted porcelain and swung it round in the air as if desirous of making its colors play. Moreover, before dinner, he subjected everything in the professor's room to a most minute examination. He also took down a picture from the wall and hung it up again, standing on one of the cushioned chairs to do so. At the same time, he talked a good deal and vehemently. At one time his thoughts kept leaping, as it were, from one subject to another. This was most conspicuous during dinner. At another... He was unable to have done with an idea, seizing upon it again and again. He gave it all sorts of wonderful twists and turns, and couldn't get back into the ordinary track until something else took hold of his fancy. Sometimes his voice was rough and harsh and screeching, and sometimes it was low and drawling and singing. But at no time did it harmonize with what he was about. Music was the subject of conversation. The praises of a new composer were being sung. When Crespel, smiling, said in his low, singing tones, I wish the devil with his pitchfork would hurl that atrocious garbler of music millions of fathoms down to the bottomless pit of hell. Then he burst out passionately and wildly, She is an angel of heaven, nothing but pure God-given music the paragon and queen of song. And tears stood in his eyes. To understand this, we had to go back to a celebrated artiste who had been the subject of conversation about an hour before. Just at this time, a roast hare was on the table. I noticed that Crespel carefully removed every particle of meat from the bones on his plate, and was most particular in his inquiries after the hare's feet. These the professor's little five-year-old daughter 
now brought him with a very pretty smile besides the children had cast many friendly glances toward cresper during the dinner now they rose and drew nearer to him but not without signs of timorous awe what's the meaning of that thought i to myself dessert was brought in then the counsellor took a little box from his pocket in which he had a miniature lathe of steel this he immediately screwed fast to the table and turning the bones with incredible skill and rapidity he made all sorts of little fancy boxes and balls which the children received with cries of delight just as we were rising from table the professor's niece asked and what is our antonia doing crespel's face was like that of one who has bitten of a sour orange and wants to look as if it were a sweet one but this expression soon changed into the likeness of a hideous mask whilst he laughed behind it with downright bitter fierce and as it seemed to me satanic scorn our antonia our dear antonia he asked in his drawling disagreeable singing way the professor hastened to intervene in the reproving glance which he gave his niece i read that she had touched a point likely to stir up unpleasant memories in Crespo's heart how are you getting along with your violins interposed the professor in a jovial manner taking the counsellor by both hands then Crespo's countenance cleared up and with a firm voice he replied capitally professor you can recollect my telling you of the lucky chance which threw that splendid amati into my hands footnote the amati were a celebrated family of violin makers of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries belonging to cremona in italy they formed the connecting link between the brescian school of makers and the greatest of all makers stradivarius and guanerius well i've only cut it open to-day not before to-day i hope antonia has carefully taken the rest of it to pieces antonia is a good child remarked the professor yes indeed that she is cried the counsellor whisking himself round then seizing his hat and stick he hastily rushed out of the room i saw in the mirror how the tears were standing in his eyes as soon as the counsellor had gone i at once urged the professor to explain to me what crespel had to do with violins and particularly with antonia well replied the professor not only is the counsellor a remarkably eccentric fellow altogether but he practises violin-making in his own crack-brained way violin-making i exclaimed perfectly astonished yes continued the professor according to the judgment of men who understand the thing crespel makes the very best violins that can be found in nowadays formerly he would frequently let other people play on those in which he had been especially successful but that's been all over and done with now for a long time as soon as he has finished a violin he plays on it himself for one or two hours with very remarkable power and with the most exquisite expression 
Then he hangs it up beside the rest, and never touches it again or suffers anybody else to touch it. If a violin by any of the eminent old masters is hunted up anywhere, the counselor buys it immediately, no matter what the price put upon it. But he plays it as he does his own violins, only once. Then he takes it to pieces in order to examine closely its inner structure. And should he fancy he hasn't found exactly what he sought for, he in a pet throws the pieces into a big chest, which is already full of the remains of broken violins. But who and what is Antonia? I inquired hastily and impetuously. Well, now, that, continued the professor, that is a thing which might very well make me conceive an unconquerable aversion to the counselor, were I not convinced that there is some peculiar secret behind it, for he is such a good-natured fellow at bottom as to be sometimes guilty of weakness. When we came to H-City several years ago, he led the life of an anchorite, along with an old housekeeper in Blank Street. Soon, by his oddities, he excited the curiosity of his neighbors, and immediately he became aware of this, and sought and made acquaintances. Not only in my house, but everywhere we became so accustomed to him that he grew to be indispensable. In spite of his rude exterior, even the children liked him, without ever proving a nuisance to him. For, notwithstanding all their friendly passages together, they always retained a certain timorous awe of him, which secured him against all over-familiarity. You have today had an example of the way in which he wins their hearts by his ready skill in various things. We all took him at first for a crusty old bachelor, and he never contradicted us. After he had been living here for some time, he went away, nobody knew where, and returned at the end of some months. The evening following his return, his windows were lit up to an unusual extent. This alone was sufficient to arouse his neighbor's attention, and they soon heard the surpassingly beautiful voice of a female singing to the accompaniment of a piano. Then the music of a violin was heard chiming in and entering upon a keen, ardent contest with the voice. They knew at once that the player was the counselor. I myself, mixed in with the large crowd which had gathered in front of his house to listen to this extraordinary concert, and I must confess that, besides this voice and the peculiar deep soul-stirring impression which the execution made upon me, the singing of the most celebrated artists whom I have ever heard seemed to me feeble and void of expression. Until then I had no conception of such long-sustained notes, of such nightingale trills, of such undulations of musical sound, of such swelling up to the strength of organ notes, of such dying away to the faintest whisper. There was not one whom the sweet witchery did not enthrall, and when the singer ceased, nothing but soft sighs broke the impressive silence. 
Somewhere about midnight the counselor was heard talking violently, and another male voice seemed, to judge from the tones, to be reproaching him, whilst at intervals the broken words of a sobbing girl could be detected. The counselor continued to shout with increasing violence until he fell into that drawling, singing way that you know. He was interrupted by a loud scream from the girl, and then all was still as death. Suddenly a loud racket was heard on the stairs. A young man rushed out sobbing, threw himself into a post-chaise which stood below, and drove rapidly away. The next day the counselor was very cheerful, and nobody had the courage to question him about the events of the previous night. But on inquiring of the housekeeper, we gathered that the counselor had brought home with him an extraordinarily pretty young lady whom he called Antonia. And she it was who had sung so beautifully. A young man had also come along with them. He had treated Antonia very tenderly, and must evidently have been her betrothed. But he, since the counselor peremptorily insisted on it, had had to go away again in a hurry. What the relations between Antonia and the counselor are has remained until now a secret. But this much is certain, that he tyrannizes over the poor girl in the most hateful fashion. He watches her as Dr. Bartholo watches his ward in the Barber of Seville. She hardly dares show herself at the window, and if, yielding now and then to her earnest entreaties, he takes her into society, he follows her with argus eyes, and will on no account suffer a musical note to be sounded, far less let Antonia sing. Indeed, she is not permitted to sing in his own house. Antonia's singing on that memorable night has, therefore, come to be regarded by the townspeople in the light of a tradition of some marvelous wonder that suffices to stir their heart and the fancy. And even those who did not hear it often exclaim, ever any other singer attempts to display her powers in the place, what sort of a wretched squeaking do you call that? Nobody but Antonia knows how to sing. Having a singular weakness for such like fantastic histories, I found it necessary, as may easily be imagined, to make Antonia's acquaintance. I had myself often enough heard the popular sayings about her singing, but had never imagined that that exquisite artiste was living in the place, held captive in the bonds of this eccentric Crespel, like the victim of a tyrannous sorcerer. Naturally enough, I heard in my dreams on the following night Antonia's marvelous voice, and as she besought me in the most touching manner in a glorious adagio movement, very ridiculously it seemed to me, as if I had composed it myself, to save her. I soon resolved, like a second Astolfo, to penetrate into Crespo's house as if into another Alcina's magic castle footnote a reference to Aristo's Orlando Furioso. 
Astolfo, an English cousin of Orlando, was a great boaster, but generous, courteous, gay, and remarkably handsome. He was carried to Alcina's island on the back of a whale, end of footnote, and delivered the queen of song from her ignominious fetters. It all came about in a different way from what I had expected. I had seen the counselor scarcely more than two or three times, and eagerly discussed with him the best method of constructing violins, when he invited me to call and see him. I did so, and he showed me his treasures of violins. There were fully thirty of them hanging up in a closet. One amongst them bore conspicuously all the marks of great antiquity, a carved lion's head, and so forth, and hung up higher than the rest, and surmounted by a crown of flowers. It seemed to exercise a queenly supremacy over them. This violin, said Crespo, on my making some inquiry relative to it, this violin is very remarkable, and curious specimen of the work of some unknown master, probably of Tartini's age. Footnote. Giuseppe Tartini, born in 1692, died in 1770, was one of the most celebrated violinists of the 18th century, and the discoverer, in 1714, of resultant tones, or Tartini's tones, as they are frequently called. Most of his life was spent at Padua. He did much to advance the art of the violinist, both by his compositions for that instrument as well by his treatise on its capabilities. End of footnote. I am perfectly convinced that there is something especially exceptional in its interconstruction, and that, if I took it to pieces, a secret would be revealed to me, which I have long been seeking to discover. But laugh at me if you like. This senseless thing, which only gives signs of life and sounds as I make it, often speaks to me in a strange way of itself. The first time I played upon it, I somehow fancied that I was only the magnetizer who has the power of moving his subject to reveal of his own accord in words the visions of his inner nature. Don't go away with the belief that I am such a fool as to attach even the slightest importance to such fantastic notions, and yet it's certainly strange that I could never prevail upon myself to cut open that dumb, lifeless thing there. I am very pleased now that I have not cut it open, for, since Antonia has been with me, I sometimes play to her upon this violin, for Antonia is very fond of it very fond of it. As the counselor uttered these words with visible signs of emotion, I felt encouraged to hazard the question. Will you not play it to me, counselor? Crespo made a wry face, and falling into his drawling, singing way, said, No, my good sir. And that was the end of the matter. Then I had to look at all sorts of rare curiosities, the greater part of them childish trifles. At last, thrusting his arm into a chest, he brought out a folded piece of paper, which he pressed into my hand, adding solemnly, You are a lover of art. 
take this present as a priceless memento which you must value at all times above everything else therewith he took me by the shoulders and gently pushed me towards the door embracing me on the threshold that is to say i was in a symbolical manner virtually kicked out of doors unfolding the paper i found a piece of a first string of a violin about an eighth of an inch in length with the words a piece of the treble string with which the deceased stamets footnote this was the name of a well-known musical family from bohemia carl stamets is the one here possibly meant since he died about eighteen or twenty years previous to the publication of this tale end of footnote strung his violin for the last concert at which he ever played this summary dismissal at the mention of antonia's name led me to infer that i should never see her but i was mistaken for on my second visit to the counsellors i found her in his room assisting him to put a violin together at first sight antonia did not make a strong impression but soon i found it impossible to tear myself away from her blue eyes her sweet rosy lips her uncommonly graceful lovely form she was very pale but a shrewd remark or merry sally would call up a winning smile on her face and suffuse her cheeks with a deep burning flush which however soon faded away to a faint rosy glow my conversation with her was quite unconstrained and yet i saw nothing whatever of the argus-like watchings on Cresswell's part which the professor had imputed to him on the contrary his behavior moved along the customary lines nay he even seemed to approve of my conversation with antonia so i often stopped in to see the counsellor and as we became accustomed to each other's society a singular feeling of homeliness taking possession of our little circle of three filled our hearts with inward happiness i still continued to derive exquisite enjoyment from the counsellor's strange crochets and oddities but it was of course antonia's irresistible charms alone which attracted me and led me to put up with a good deal which i should otherwise in the frame of mind which i was then have impatiently shunned for it only too often happened that in the counsellor's characteristic extravagance there was mingled much that was dull and tiresome and it was in a special degree irritating to me that as often as i turned the conversation upon music and particularly upon singing he was sure to interrupt me with that sardonic smile upon his face and those repulsive singing tones of his by some remark of a quite opposite tendency very often of a commonplace character from the great distress which at such times antonia's glances betrayed i perceived that he only did it to deprive me of a pretext for calling upon her for a song but i didn't relinquish my design the hindrances 
which the counsellor threw in my way only strengthened my resolution to overcome them i must hear antonia sing if i was not to pine away in reveries and dim aspirations for want of hearing her end of section six